0: Is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio
1: New South Wales.
2: Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, reaction to the budget. And the water is receding in the Moree Shire amid a devastating flood peak on the weekend. But the true extent of the damage to homes and businesses, well, it's still unknown. Meanwhile, farmers are counting the massive cost of damage to crops.
3: Well, the whole situation's totally disastrous. The, we had an estimate there was probably 200,000 hectares already damaged in the lower Guida and the lower Namoi before the flood, and the figure now will be... I, I, don't, I couldn't even put a guess on it. It's massive. The, there are areas out west that haven't ever been flooded before that are totally inundated, and crops are uh, obviously bulldozed into the ground uh, and unharvestable.
2: So hundreds of thousands of hectares damaged, uh, crop damage now. That seems to be the estimate, which is uh, up from previous estimates. You can always uh, send us a text. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me here at the Country About Conditions uh, at your place on your farm. It's six minutes past 12. But first up today, let's look at the budget. The federal government appears to be paving the way for a showdown with farmers, rural communities and the eastern states revealing plans to reintroduce water buybacks. The Albanese government is also going to abandon dam projects and prioritise town water supplies in a clear rebuff of National Party priorities. Here's an unapologetic Treasurer, Jim Chalmers.
4: Oh, well, what we've tried to do when it comes to uh, the water program uh, is to reprofile it in a sensible way. We won't be proceeding with Hell's Gate, but some of the other big projects have just been reprofiled. We've got a big investment in water, we've got a big investment in the Murray Darling Basin Plan, uh, but we've tried to come at it in a, in a more responsible way.
2: Well, New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin says, while the first Labor budget contains promising announcements, rural communities will be bitterly disappointed. He says increases uh, with gas and power prices, they're going to skyrocket over the next two years and long-term water spending has been slashed while the trapdoor has been set for water buybacks. He says it's uh, strange to be talking about a drought when the state's in flood, but uh, we know that uh, that next drought is not that far away and we need to be planning for it, he says and that's why they see uh, it's critical that we have the drought-proofing projects such as Dungowan and White Angler Dam. He also has concerns about investment into research and development uh, in regards to biosecurity as well. I spoke to Xavier Martin about the budget, and uh, he was not happy with the overall tone of it.
5: Look, I think it fails on a number of key issues. I mean, it's got some promising announcements embedded in it, but, you know, overall, the cost of energy going through the roof and continuing electricity and gas in particular certainly not good news for rural and regional farmers and families um and look there's recognition around the workforce issues housing and essential services such as health and telecommunications but uh you know getting the balance right and you know some of the timelines around this michael they're kicking them down to 2024 which is quite extraordinary really that uh Things are deferred, even investments badly needed investments in critical projects like Dungowan and Windinger dams.
2: Yes, that was uh, yes deferred for another four years. But you know, there's some aren't there some question marks about how useful they would be in flood mitigation? I mean, maybe that's the reason they've deferred it.
5: Oh, look, in relation to Dungowan, I mean we've got approximately 100,000 people in that Peel Valley, and the projections are dire in a in a drought. And uh, you know, as more of the value adding goes on in that Peel Valley it's uh it's an extraordinary uh, strike of confidence to think that if, in a period where we need to conserve water la Nina moving into hopefully more goldilocks years but you know we know that drought will come again and we've got to plan ahead for that and that's why something like Dungowan's required i mean Wyangler is a different requirement but nevertheless uh you know the concept that these matters can be just kicked down the road is uh, quite extraordinary and undermines confidence, really.
2: The other issue about labour, they have expanded the Pacific Island Workers Scheme, but you don't think that's enough?
5: Oh, no, we're way behind. You know, our casual and seasonal workforce is just way behind, and so there's a lot more. It's welcome that they've recognised and acknowledged it and acted to a limited extent. But, uh, you know, there's a, if we're going to... Uh, maintain the agricultural dynamo that drives the economy of this nation, we need to address this workforce and housing issue as a matter of urgency not kick it down the road as well.
2: But, I mean, in terms of visas, you know, there was a lot of red tape. The previous government, they put out, supposedly put out visas and nobody came, nobody took them up. So it's not always that easy.
5: No, that's right. And, look, uh, those issues have got to be addressed. New South Wales Farmers is in the business of coming up with solutions to these things. So, we're not just here to, to raise issues or criticise. We're here to help, and uh, you know we'll continue to put forward solutions for politicians. You know, so to stop making, stop them making um, bad decisions.
2: The other issue about irrigation water. It looks as though buybacks are on the table. Any issues there and concerns there? No doubt there would be in many communities.
5: Oh, look. There's real apprehension this morning, Michael, that that has been set for water buybacks. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, really. It, uh, some people say it'll kill their community. Some say it's chilling their investment. But whether it's killing or chilling, you know, it's, it's uh, just extraordinary that, uh, I mean, basically Prime Minister Albanese really wants to identify who, out of the 100 million people that Australian farmers feed and clothe, who he wants to go hungry and cold. Because if he keeps doing things like removing productive water and pledging on methane with Joe Biden. I mean, we are not going to feed that many people. It's going to reduce the number of people we can feed and clothe.
2: You mentioned the methane issue, but aren't they trying to do some you know, take some action on climate change, reduce emissions and, you know, remove the remove those that warming that we're seeing in the planet that that's causing this flooding, that's causing these extreme events, that's causing these droughts. You know, isn't isn't there another way of looking at those that sort of action, which is actually, you know, which is devastating to agriculture when you see the results of climate change?
5: Well, Michael, New South Wales Farmers Association continues to put forward um, solutions of merit around environmental responses. Um, you know, in reality, we are a very small part of the whole global weather system. And in relation to making positive moves around that, farmers stand ready to to follow the science. But in relation to some of these matters, including methane, it's just theories. There's no, no realities and practices that are being put out there that we can practically adopt. Uh, and for example, we've got farmers wanting to invest in emissions efficient agricultural equipment and they're ordering it today, Michael, and being told that it'll be touch and go whether it arrives in time for the Asset write-off regime. The government failed to extend that for uh, for the investment in modern equipment that will help address these environmental concerns.
2: You're also not happy about funding for biosecurity. Why is that?
5: Well, while they've announced some funding, they don't have the long-term certainty around it, Michael. And basically, uh, you know, if we just pick foot and mouth, uh, it's like having the Ruby Princess just sitting off the coast, and they're not prepared to commit to spending to resolve the issue. So. You know, it's a serious threat, an $80 billion threat to the agricultural sector and the broader economy. And we all we really got was some recycled announcement, a few more detected dogs, just hopeless, really.
2: New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin, but the Agriculture Minister Murray-Watt has rejected a lot of those criticisms, saying Labor is focused on keeping pests and diseases out and getting workers on farms. He says they're at the centre of the agriculture spend in the Albanese government's first budget. There's also funds allocated so the Commonwealth could buy back water from irrigators in the Murray-Darling Basin, something that hasn't happened for close to a decade. Decade. Early this morning, our reporter, Kath Sullivan, asked Min- Agriculture Minister Murray what to explain, what rural Australia can expect.
6: Well, I think there's some really important points in last night's budget for rural Australia. Um, obviously, in the agriculture space, we're making significant new investments for biosecurity, uh, the biggest investment we've ever seen from a federal government in livestock traceability uh, with new systems, particularly for sheep and goats, something that no government's really been able to do before. Uh, we're also just beefing up our biosecurity protections in general at the borders, support for overseas, because that's has been got a big issue.
7: You've got about $60 million there for biosecurity mm. in this year's budget. But isn't that just money from future years that you've brought
6: forward? Mm. The former government did budget around the same amount uh, in their budget earlier this year but what's different is that we're bringing that funding forward and fast tracking it. Uh, the money that the former government had in their budget was to be spent over four years. We're going to get it out the door within two because we just realised that we can't wait given the nature of the threats around there. So we are fast tracking the existing funding that was there but also adding to it particularly in the, li- in the uh, livestock traceability space. I think more generally you know, there's obviously a lot of money in there for climate smart agriculture. Um, I've said previously that we know agriculture really wants to get on with adjusting to climate change and there's serious investment there from federal government to back it up Uh, and of course with all of these floods that are around as well there's a really big new investment from the government in disaster readiness too.
7: Okay it's quite a shopping list to run through but just on the traceability Mm -hmm. you've put um, I think close to 50 million dollars towards a new livestock traceability system Mm -hmm. on the 1st of January 2025. Can you tell me do you expect it will be mandatory for sheep and goats in australia to have electronic ear tags on the 1st of january 2025
6: that is certainly what we're working towards with the states and territories obviously it's not something that the federal government can do alone uh, but by putting some serious money on the table like we have in the budget we think we can get towards that time frame uh, for mandatory tagging
7: so that in place on the 1st of January. That's what the states are working towards with you?
6: Yep. The recent meeting we had of the Agriculture Ministers, state, federal and territory, agreed that we would work towards mandatory implementation by the 1st of January 2025. You know, that I think you need to set that kind of target uh, for when we want to start, um, but it also gives state governments as well as federal governments time to get money in their budgets to meet these objectives.
7: I want to go to the worker shortage on Australian farms. Now, as part of the budget, there has been free TAFE places um, made available. E <todiculose> But what are you doing to get workers on Australian farms?
6: Yep. Um, There's a few things we've already got underway. Coming out of the Skills Summit that we held recently, we agreed as a government to increase Australia's migration cap, um, and particularly in regional areas. So that is starting to flow through with more people coming uh, into the country and being able to stay and work here. Um, We're also making a big investment to clear the huge backlog of visa applications, which has been impacting on the agriculture industry. When we took office, there were nearly a million visa applications waiting to be processed. Uh, and we're throwing resources at that to get it down. Uh, But obviously we're making changes to the Pacific Island Labor Scheme to beef that up and bring in more people that way as well. But we also want to make sure that we are focusing on training locals, and that's why getting agriculture to be a priority sector for these new fee-free TAFE places is really important to provide locals with opportunities too.
7: Prior to the election, as part of that commitment to bolster the PALM scheme, Uh, Labor said that it would pay the cost, the initial arrival cost, to help workers arrive in Australia. Have you broken that promise?
6: I don't think we've broken the promise. What we have done, though, is sit down and really properly work it through with industry uh, and some of the large uh, industry groups um, like um, AFPA uh, and Ausvege. The feedback to us from them was that what would work better is effectively for the government to underwrite um, the travel costs that they can't recoup. What some of the uh, peak bodies were concerned about is overloading farmers with administrative burdens. Uh, and what we've, what we've now come up with is, this, with, it, is with a system um, that a lot of those peak groups tell us will work, but don't, doesn't impose an unnecessary administrative burden as well. So how does it work? Well, basically, uh, where an employer can't recoup some of those costs uh, from the employee, uh, and in many cases that's not appropriate, then the government would underwrite that system. Um, but the, 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 there so are, the
7: employer's on the hook? Uh,
6: initially, uh, they will be. Um, but as I say, many of the Uh, uh, companies that use the Palm Scheme are very large businesses who are in a position to fund uh, those costs up front, but they would have that money recouped from the government uh, where it can't be recouped otherwise. And as I say, that's the system that they told us that they wanted.
7: And when does the Palm Scheme actually... When is that actually legislated? Because we know there was a bit of a hold-up. Labor Mm. blamed the Coalition, the Coalition blamed Labor Mm. for that legislation not going through in the last Parliament. Mm. Um, Have you knocked that over yet?
6: We haven't set a particular time frame for that because there's obviously a whole bunch of Legislation we need to get through across government but I'm certainly working with the relevant ministers to make sure it's a priority.
7: For farmers, um, communities in the eastern states in particular, uh, they might be shocked to realise that the federal government has set aside a secret sum of money. that um, can't be identified for commercial reasons so that the government can meet water savings targets in the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Why don't you just say we're buying back the water?
6: Well, that's obviously still something that's being under consideration from Tanya Plibersek as the Water Minister. Um, I don't want to speak on her behalf, but I have certainly been speaking with her to make sure that um, she's taking into account the needs of agriculture, and I know that she is. Um, so, you know, it's uh, really, as you would understand, if we put too many figures out there, that does influence the price that we can, you know, get water for or, or make more efficient water production for. So, it's But realistically, right.
7: it's a very strong signal that in this financial year, the Commonwealth could be re- entering the water market?
6: Uh, Potentially, as I say that is still under consideration by Tanya. What we are really committed to is delivering the Murray-Darling Basin uh, plan uh, and that hasn't been delivered by the previous government. They they haven't delivered the water efficiency needs that are needed to meet that plan so money will be used in a variety of ways to meet it.
2: Agriculture Minister Murray Watt, will, on that issue of water and water buybacks and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, irrigators are calling on the federal government to confirm its intentions for an undisclosed figure in last night's federal budget to set aside to meet water-saving targets in the Murray-Darling Basin. Uh, The budget allocates a confidential sum, as we just heard from the Minister, for this uh, 2022-2023 financial year. New South Wales Irrigators Chief
8: Executive Claire Miller wants the government to please explain. It was cause for concern, and it's cause for concern because we don't know what the government's intentions are. Now, we understand from media reporting that its intentions is money for buybacks, now, that's really triggering for Basin communities and farmers because it takes them straight back to the bad old days of the um, of 2008 to 2012 where the government just rode roughshod over communities to buy back water. Um, and the uncertainty here is, well, well, what are their intentions with this undisclosed amount of money?
7: Now, you represent irrigators and if the government does enter the market and buy back water entitlements, irrigation rights from irrigators willing to sell, isn't that a good thing? Presumably they'll be offering a premium.
8: They will be offering a premium, but all I would say is that uh, irrigators who want to sell their water now, uh, whether they want to retire or they want money to invest in other ventures, you know, whatever their reasons are, they already have a water market. They can already sell their water so if they're waiting for the government to buy their water at a premium for the environment, then they're leaving everybody else in a much, much worse position with a smaller consumptive pool. And that just puts even more upward pressure on on water prices for everybody. And is particularly precarious in those drought periods.
7: We know that 450 gigalitres for the environment was a commitment at the time the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was legislated a decade ago. South Australia says the water is needed for the environment for the rivers throughout the basin. Why is
8: it wrong? That particular commitment was a very last-minute political announcement, only about three or four weeks before the basin plan was finalised. It was never on the table for consultation in the two to four years beforehand with the community. So it was sprung on communities throughout the basin. As I say, it was a political commitment to get South Australia over the line. But it was also based on modelling with a number of assumptions in there. And one of the big assumptions was that all constraints could be overcome. Now, constraints are not just infrastructure like roads and bridges that get in the way of higher flows in the river. It's also the capacity to inundate private property. And you can't do that without voluntary flood easements. And we're talking about you know more than 6,000 landowners just in New South Wales alone in the Southern Basin would need to agree to those. So that takes a lot of time and a lot of community trust to get there. And the Productivity Commission pointed it out in 2018, that more water could be recovered, but it would be unusable unless these constraints are addressed first. And for that, the government needs the Basin's communities' trust, that it's not going to be imposing further hardship on them.
7: There's two water-saving targets uh, as part of the Murray-Darling Basin that are really uh, lagging behind the 2024 deadline. One is the 605 gigalitres that's meant to come from state-run projects, including constraints. How much water has been recovered toward that target?
8: I can't say off the top of my head, but we do know that several of those projects are at extreme risk of not being delivered by 2024 and some of the numbers that have been bandied about is that that could be a shortfall of up to 340 gigalitres on that side of the the sidlam equation now several of those projects are these constraints projects where you need to get voluntary flood agreements with um, thousands of landowners and that was always going to take more than a decade to deliver that again there's there's plenty of examples showing why that would take more than that time and the government knew that back in 2012 Um, So we need more time for that one to be delivered and it's absolutely essential to get the environmental outcomes that you need from the Basin Plan anyway. Um, But but
7: if that 605 gigalitres isn't recovered by June 2024, you'd currently expect the Commonwealth to re-enter the market to make up that shortfall?
8: Yes, it could re-enter the market to make up that shortfall. But again, we come back to the Productivity Commission's point that more water could be recovered but it would be unusable unless the constraints are addressed first.
2: Claire Miller is the CEO of New South Wales Irrigators Council. Well, the Labor government is also looking to save money in the budget by deferring some projects, including almost $900 million from projects, including the Dungowan Dam and also the Wayangla Wayangla Dam and also some pipelines too. There's also money, as we heard, allocated for water buybacks, which the state government does not support New South Wales Water Minister and Tamworth MP Kevin Anderson says he thinks it's a setback for the state government.
9: Yeah, extremely frustrated. Um, There's no doubt about that. Um, But it's all in the language, in my view. We were pushing all along to have their share of funding for Dungown Dam reserved. And when they uh, talked about their infrastructure statements, uh, there were a number of water projects that they said, one, they were not proceeding with. Two, returning the funding, or three, deferring the funding until, you know, a pathway could be found uh, to deliver. So we are in that third bucket, the pathway uh, to funding, you know, to deliver the particular project. So the money's been deferred, it's been paused. Yeah, very frustrating, but there's more work to be done, and uh, nothing is ever easy um, but we are committed to uh, the new Dungown Dam. and We'll continue to work on it. The uh, environmental impact statement from New South Wales' perspective will be out very, very shortly. We'll continue with the early works and the construction of the pipeline to ensure the projects shovel-ready by 2023. And, you know, the federal government's asked for more work to be done and, in their words, uh, show us uh, viable pathways to delivery are determined what we've got to do is, with this new government, show them the pathway to delivery and and the door is still ajar and uh, while it's still ajar, we need to continue to push ahead where the New South Wales government is still committed to this project. Uh,
10: Mr. Anderson, I wanted to get your thoughts on water buybacks as well. Of course, I I realise a federal kind of issue, but the government has set aside an undisclosed amount to start buying water entitlements from farmers living in the Murray-Darling Basin. The move, of course, an attempt to return uh, 450 gigalitres to the environment by June 2024. What are your thoughts on this? Lots of communities concerned about these buybacks and what that will mean for their population and jobs going
9: forward. Well, the New South Wales Government does not support non-strategic buyback. So we've said all along, and when uh, I was at the Ministerial Council of Water Ministers for the Murray-Darling Basin uh, just a few short weeks ago, that uh, the Basin Plan uh, needed to be more uh, accepting of some of the projects that were delivering broader environmental outcomes. We asked for more time to deliver the plan. We asked for flexibility in the plan because our communities, particularly up north, with floodplain harvesting that we're licensing up north and uh, a lot of other areas, when you talk about the south, you've got the Murrumbidgee, you've got the Colliambly and the Murray Irrigation Systems. They are doing significant work when it comes to returning water to the environment and being more efficient about the way they operate. So that's not being taken into account in relation to those targets set by the Murray-Darling Basin That's why we've asked for more time and flexibility. That's what we've got. And we'll meet again in February uh, to uh, address these issues.
2: Tamworth MP and Water Minister Kevin Anderson, National Party leader at the federal level, David Littleproud, rejects the analysis that this is a steady issue goes financially responsible budget. His take is that it's a slap in the face for the forgotten people of regional Australia.
11: We got left behind and then when we lose our infrastructure, we've got no future and unfortunately, nor does Australia, because if you, if you just cast your mind back over the last two years, we paid the nation's bills. While many industries were put under the doona, agriculture and resources paid the bills of this nation and left us in pretty good stead. When you wake up in regional Australia this morning, you feel as though you have been left behind. You look, you've lost your future and you're going to pay for it in higher costs of $2,000 between now and, now and Christmas. I don't think regional Australians will be smiling too much, but we're part of this country and we're just saying, please don't forget us because we feel like second class citizens and we feel like the forgotten Australians. Okay. The Hell's Dam, pretty big project. I think off the top of my head, $5.4 billion. Correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of other dam funding are deferred as well. What's your reaction to that? Well, well that's our future gone, but that's our nation's future gone. And while I understand there's, there's uh, spending pressure that we need to bring under control. Uh, you've got to understand that to address a structural budget uh, a deficit and to address a structural deficit in the long term one of the ways you can do that is grow the pie to actually create more income to give your citizens the tools to be able to create more revenue. And if you take away water infrastructure, you take away regional Australia's future and you take away our future. Is That's there how you a lot of the bills. Though, uh, sorry but global economic forecasts, they're dire you know, this was always going to be a challenge is there a lot of room at the moment, a lot of capital to grow? Grow that pie? Well, well th- this is where it comes down to priorities about understanding it's not just about cutting spending to, to address structural deficits. It's also about investing in your people, trusting your people, investing in giving them the tools they need. Governments don't create wealth. You do. The Australian people. I've just got a few other issues I want to ask you about, if you don't mind. Water buybacks, back on the table to help meet Murray-Darling Basin Plan commitments. Now, proponents argue that buybacks are the most efficient way to meet these commitments. You're not a proponent, are you? Well, you want to live in a town, that, like I have where um, it's not the farmer that hurts. They get their money and they go off to the coasts and, and forget about those that live back there, those that are employed in the local machinery shop, in the irrigation shop, the local hydrologist, the local agronomist. Uh, they don't have work and they leave and it kills the towns. Uh, we are 80% of the way through the Murray-Darling Basin Plant. The last 20%... Uh, has money budgeted to complete it with infrastructure so that you use the smarts of the 21st century to recover water from the environment out of efficiencies of use of water with infrastructure. That means you don't have to take it out of the consumptive pool of agriculture. You don't have to kill regional Australia.
2: David Littleproud, the National National Party leader. It's uh, coming up to half past 12 on the country. Oh, well, there's some finer details of other projects being funded in the budget as well. They're coming to light today. And in the Upper Hunter and Liverpool Plains, a major freight route will be rebuilt. The Albanese government has committed $38.6 million to the Colson's Creek Road to reconnect the two towns. Upper Hunter Mayor Morris Collison is thrilled about the news.
12: I got a merry war a fair bit and, and there's not a meeting that goes past that it's not mentioned. In fact, I've often said I, I'm sick of talking about it. We're trying our best. And I always said prior to our elections, I would fight and fight to the end. And that's why Greg and I went to, uh, to Canberra to meet Minister King and, uh, and just you know, tell her how important it was. And uh, well done to the Labor government and uh, to Barnaby Joyce. And uh, I don't care where the money comes from. It's, it's come.
0: For someone who's not familiar or, or you know, may not, may struggle to understand the importance of repairing this road, could you give us a snapshot of why it is so important?
12: Well, tourism for the start. I mean, yes, from Tenworth to, to Mary Ward to our beautiful Upper Hunter, that that is a, a scenic tour through there. But as far as the farmers go, I mean, sending cattle to Tenworth, you've got to come back through Scone. And it could add four or $500 to a load of stock to Tenworth. To, uh, it's so important, It just, it's like the road from Scone to Gloucester that's Getting repaired now. It's so important for the well-being of
2: our Upper Hunter Shire. Upper Hunter Mayor Morris Collison there, and he says the council is shovel ready. And you can read more about that story online from the Upper Hunter team. It's uh, twenty-eight minutes to one, and it's time to get. Uh, we'll have some weather details shortly, but before we do that, some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon.
13: afternoon, Michael. Well, inflation in Australia has jumped again, and it's now at its highest level in uh, thirty-two years. Uh, Consumer prices have jumped 7.3% over the past year, uh, according to the latest figures. Now, despite there being a fall in petrol prices, uh, a jump in construction costs, gas, fruit and furniture prices uh, saw the um, monthly inflation figure jump 1.8%. The Treasury is expecting inflation to peak at 7.75% by the end of the year. Uh, Medibank has confirmed that the group behind the cyber attack on the company had access to the data of around 4 million current customers, as well as former ones as well. Uh, now, the healthcare providers yesterday said it had suspicions that was the case, but it has today been confirmed. In uh, budget news, the federal government says it doesn't regret promising to cut electricity prices during the election after last night's budget projected prices will soar by more than 50% over the next two years. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has hinted that the government may consider regulatory interventions in an effort to address the increase. I can't see how you can't with a 50% increase in... Well, the reservation of gas.
2: I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got plenty of gas in Australia. I mean, um, that's just my personal view. (laughs)
13: Turn the the taps on, (laughs) says Michael. But, I mean, they
2: do it in in WA, and they've got the system there in WA, and it seems to be working there. It keeps their prices down Something's got to give.
13: I mean, 50% on what we're paying now. Mm. It's just as a man's supposed to eat.
2: And so we pay actually more here than they do for gas when we sell it to Indonesia.
13: Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the uh, main uh, victims of the budget is the uh, upgrade of the the Great Western Highway across the Blue Mountains. Um, The budget hasn't included any money for the Commonwealth share of the project. Uh, So the state government says uh, work will no longer start next year and it could be at least two years away before Mm. anything happens on that
2: the tunnel through the blue mountains would yeah. be pretty handy yeah, it would <laughs>
13: make that journey <laughs> so the much mountain, quicker so much quicker
2: and freight and rail yeah. and everything yeah. much quicker as well yeah. It'd absolutely make it be a be a, be a game changer
13: yeah <sighs> yeah yep. yep. oh, well, one well, day <laughs> okay
2: all right thanks for that adam adam's story there with the news headlines let's find out what's happening with the weather details now Gabriel woodhouse at the bureau good afternoon
0: Good afternoon, Michael. How are now
2: we, you? F- we managed to get the phones to work today, so that's a good thing. So that's good. Oh, so m- apologies must- for yesterday. <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, uh, the situation with the weather details, uh, is it still raining in, in, in the state at the moment or is it cleared out now?
0: No, it hasn't cleared out and we're not expecting it to really clear out. But um, at the moment, we're seeing a number of showers across the, the southern parts of the state and including the western slopes there. and little shower or two up over the northern inland as well at the moment and that story is going to be the case for the next couple of days with um, a few showers on on the southern um, ranges and western slopes there but rainfall totals are going to be generally uh, quite light up towards the alpine peaks we could be picking up somewhere between you know uh, 10 and 20 millimetres of rainfall. Um, Tomorrow though we are looking at some more storms affecting pretty much most of the eastern half of the state and looking at severe storms being likely across parts of the Hunter and mid north coast. Could still see some severe storms up across the northwest slopes and plains, uh, the northern rivers and the northern tablelands as well. So one we to watch out for tomorrow because we could be picking up uh, you know, a decent burst of rain with some of those storms um, and generating some local flash flooding but uh, we could also see some damaging winds and large hail. But uh, in terms of rainfall, um, we are looking at the next system coming through um, basically from later on Sunday and uh, into the first half of next week. At this stage it looks as though uh, we'll be seeing some fairly widespread showers and thunderstorms. For the rainfall, it's going to be of a little bit more concern will be that that falls on the western slopes more so on Monday, Tuesday and perhaps into early parts of Wednesday. Um, The guidance is a little bit all over the place at the moment in terms of uh, how much rain we're going to see in different areas. But uh, currently what we've been seeing is a bit of a trend towards um, a little bit more rain across the southwest slopes on Monday Um, and across the northwest slopes and plains. That's where we're looking at um, a little bit more in the way of uh, showers and storms during the first half of next week. And, you know, widespread falls of, you know, uh, you know, say like 10 10 to 30 millimetres could be on the cards. But um, as we know, adding that thunderstorm potential, we could pick up a little bit more um, underneath those. So it's a bit of a changing story. And uh, we'll also see that cold front coming in next week. So we are looking at windy conditions developing so I wouldn't be surprised if we do see a sheep graziers warning being issued sometime uh, for the early part of next week as we see uh, temperatures cool off and uh, the winds really start to pick up particularly across the southern parts of the ranges.
2: So the system next week are we going to get similar rainfall to what we've just seen or is it uh, is it going to be a bit lighter with the storms I suppose it's potential summer could be heavier but overall is it are we is it a yeah, is it a uh, le- is there less rainfall in this coming system?
0: At this stage it looks as a fraction less rainfall than what we have been seeing for the but last not couple a lot. of systems, but not not a huge difference in my books at this stage and and like I say that that thunderstorm risk means that there will be some areas that will pick up a little bit more. Um, and so that um, side of things it's something that we're going to have to sort of tie down over the next few days as we start to get a little bit more Uh, better guidance coming in about how that system's going to be behaving and and what kind of thunderstorms uh, and how widespread the thunderstorm activity will end up being.
2: And is it going to be across the whole state or is it focused more on the north or more on the south this time? Well, it's going to be a really slow
0: progression of that uh, system across the state. So initially, it's going to be across the southern parts um, from later Sunday and through Monday. But then we start to see that transition more towards the northern parts of the state um, from Monday afternoon and into Tuesday and potentially even into Wednesday as well. So um, that's where um, initially that the focus will be across the southwest slopes. um, And then uh, from Tuesday in particular, that's when we're looking at the the rainfall risk being a little bit more so uh, across the northwest slopes and plains.
2: And more chance of more flooding. I mean, we're hearing the waters receding a bit in some of those northern parts, uh, and but we're still seeing sort of moderate to major flooding in some of the southern systems now too. Is it, uh, is it likely to, to rejig those, some of those flood warnings and some of those flood peaks again?
0: It could well do. So at this stage it looks as though um, there'll be uh, indeed a risk of flash flooding with those storms but um, as we see that rainfall it's not going to take much for some of those rivers to respond again so we could be seeing some renewed flooding across those inland catchments and obviously there's so many uh, flood peaks moving downstream and and most of them are somewhere between minor to, to major flooding and they're going to take quite a number of weeks to be able to fully recede. Mm. So it's, it's um, unfortunately with this environment where the, the ground is so wet, it looks likely that we'll continue to see those rivers responding very quickly um, and, and that we'll have to just keep an eye on the rainfall forecast and what that's going to mean um, for those uh, river catchments.
2: We seem to be having a rolling system after rolling system coming through like a few days break and then another rain system coming through. That's the pattern we're seeing. Any sign that pattern is receding at all? It doesn't seem to be looking at at the charts.
0: No, it doesn't seem to be um, looking at the charts and indeed a lot of the climate drivers are still there pointing to to those wetter than average conditions. Um, In the multi-week climate outlook though, we are sort of seeing a little bit of a hint of perhaps some drier um, conditions through um, the first part of November. So that one is the one that we're obviously really hoping for because um, we do need a chance to dry out, but uh, considering just how wet uh, the ground is, it's going to take a really prolonged period for us uh, to see those, like if we see a prolonged dry period, to start to actually see the soils become a little bit drier and and that flood risk decrease. So that's, I can't see that happening just yet, but um, we are seeing at least a drier outlook um during the first part of november
2: and get the harvest happening yeah okay all right well that that would be good for for uh, a change considering what we're seeing at the moment Uh, gabrielle thanks for that my pleasure it's 20 it's 19 minutes to one
9: you're listening to the country hour
2: on abc radio
1: new south wales
2: Well, the water is receding in the Moree Shire amid that devastating flood peak on the weekend. But the true extent of the damage to homes and businesses, well, it's still unknown. And meanwhile, farmers are counting the costs of damage to crops, with canola to be harvested any time now. And cereal crops not too far away either. Cotton has also just been sown for many farmers in the West. Peter Birch is a Moree agronomist and he was out yesterday morning to start inspecting the massive damage.
3: Well, the whole situation is totally disastrous. The, we had an estimate there was probably 200,000 hectares already damaged in the lower Guida and the lower Namoy before the flood, and the figure now will be... I, 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 don't, I couldn't even put a guess on it. It's massive. The, there are areas out west that haven't ever been flooded before that are totally inundated and crops uh, obviously bulldozed into the ground uh, and unharvestable. And infrastructure, roads, uh, dams, irrigation infrastructure, etc., and fencing. Of course, the massive fencing losses. So, yeah, that's, that's going to take a long time to rebuild after this one. But everyone's up and into it. And uh, yeah, the crops uh, that on the slope of your country where they were nearly ready to harvest, uh, there's obviously been some damage, but it's probably. Not, but it doesn't look like it's been too much shot and sprung uh, grain at the moment, so it might have been just uh, in the nick of time or just early enough that it didn't cause major damage there. So uh, the growers will will be, the cash flow crisis will be obviously uh, very large at the moment because it's been a very expensive crop to grow. You know, there was a lot of money spent on fertiliser, fungicides. Herbicides, etc., and it's been a very expensive crop to grow. This one, and to lose it totally at this stage is, is of course, uh, heartbreaking. Yeah. I suppose moving on to the what's going to happen now. Uh, obviously, each individual farmer will be doing their whatever they have to do to get to you know whatever income they can back out of the year, but the. The road situation is absolutely diabolic in you know there was lots of actual bitumen removed off the roads in places I went yesterday the you know the whole Terry high Road has got ripples of tar through it, and I'm sure the first grain truck will just tear that totally to pieces and it's it gets absolutely worse when you get onto the gravel roads so yeah we're we're in absolutely desperate need of you know the council i see that some money come through from the uh the government, to the councils for pothole fixing, but there's going to be a lot, lot, lot more than that. There's just major, major damage, bridges, culverts, etc. gone. So we've got a long way to go.
10: How would you describe the the area of damage? I mean, would you say it's widespread? Is there particular parts of the region that have fared worse than others?
3: Well, the water comes and goes fairly quickly in the east, so yeah so it still does damage, but the, there's still crops standing and yeah particularly with, I was very surprised that the canola and canola that had gone totally underwater was still actually there, and, and will probably be harvestable, assuming we can get ahead of on at some stage uh once you go out west where the water lays the uh the damage yeah so anywhere <coughs> that, that those rivers head downstream so once once the guaida gets past mori and and heads off in all the different anabranches branches and and the uh the same with the Galatha and the and the Namoi. Once once they head west and and into into flatter country, the damage it, it just it'll kill crops. It'll make them you know covered in mud, laid in the laid in the ground, and there's, there'll be water lying in those paddocks for for weeks and weeks and weeks, which will make harvest you know diabolic at the best.
10: Peter, how would you describe what you've seen compared to previous floods? Of course, the area, no stranger to flooding, but how would you describe what you've seen so far?
3: I think the biggest difference, this one, is it started you know, really, it started way back in March uh, and uh, there have been people fighting floodwaters since March. The rivers have been full and uh, the timing, or the, not the timing, the, the duration of this flood has just been way, way, way more than any of, even the, even the, you know, the 2012 and, and some of the big floods, they came and went. Whereas this one is just, you know, the, the river was running 200,000 megs a day, and it has been for about two weeks. And it's still, you know, because they're still having to let water out of Copeton. Yeah, there's still a lot of water in the river, which is why it's taken so long to go down anywhere, and and why it'll make such a mess out west, because the west was already full of water anyway, and and this water's just going to come straight down over the top of it, and and just it's got nowhere to go. It'll it'll eventually get to places where it can get out into the into the barland, but there's there's lots of areas out there that'll be un, inundated for a long time.
2: Peter Birch is a Maury agronomist who was out and about yesterday inspecting the damage. He was talking there to Christy Reading. It's 14 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour.
14: On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
2: In a landmark case, a Mwoolumba man has been fined almost $4,000 in fines after abusing a fisheries officer over social media the conviction it's the first time that an individual has been prosecuted for such abuse. Miranda Saunders spoke to the uh, DPI's Lee Burdett, who said it's uh, now set a precedent and anyone who abuses fishery officers will face similar fines.
15: So it came to the department's attention that um, a particular man uh, had posted um, on Facebook Live a video of himself being very offensive, using colorful and offensive and abusive language uh, and using uh, naming a particular fisheries officer that works uh, on the far north coast of New South Wales.
1: What was his grievance with the New South Wales fisheries officer?
15: Uh, he had uh, particular grievances about being inspected by this fisheries officer.
1: So what happened from there? How did you go about uh, enforcing a fine on him?
15: yeah that was actually uh, quite difficult because the man uh, didn't want to be um, interviewed in relation to his actions, um, and so therefore we needed to take it to court and uh, let the magistrate make a decision on this.
1: Okay, so uh, so then it went through the court, and what was the result of the court case?
15: Yes, yeah, so the, record, the uh, result was that he was found convicted on two charges of abusing a fisheries officer, uh, and the fines uh, was just under four thousand dollars.
1: Why is it so important that uh, that that people who are um, speaking against you know fisheries officers and in this abusive type of way, why is this so important that they get reprimanded for what they're doing?
15: Well, fisheries officers are out and about in the public trying to do their job to the best of their ability. Um, and you know anybody who is being physically or verbally abusive um, uh, towards a fisheries officer, it, it just won't be tolerated. Fisheries officers are there to do a job. They're there to uh, make sure that people are um, not breaking the rules in relation to the fisheries uh, regulations and protecting habitats and those sorts of things. Um, and it's just it's unacceptable and it won't be tolerated by the department.
1: This obviously sends a clear message to anyone else that uh, it, no matter if it's in person or on social media, that if you are abusing a fisheries officer, uh, you could be prosecuted.
15: Absolutely. Uh, this is uh, the first time certainly in our arena that we're aware of that um, somebody had been prosecuted for using uh, a social media um, platform. Um, but now that the uh, the courts have ruled that, that's um, certainly something that we'll be looking for again.
1: What is the max- maximum penalty that someone may face? So the maximum
15: penalty for uh, threatened, abuse or assaulting a fisheries officer is $22,000 or up to um, three months imprisonment.
2: That's the Department of Primary Industries. Lee Burdett speaking there to Miranda Saunders. It's coming up to 10 minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, bee baiting will begin this week in Nana Glen on the Coffs Coast as the state government works to control the Varroa mite outbreak. Uh, one hive was found with varroa mite in an area back in July, triggering a 10km eradication zone around that region. The Department of Primary Industries is now just wrapping up the destruction of about 1,600 hives in the zone. DPI's Chief Plant Protection Officer, Dr Satendra Kumar, told Keely Johnson they're now targeting feral bees. The way it
16: works is that we have to get rid of all the managed hives within a 10K of an infected property. There are 1,674 hives. So we're progressing. we have nearly finished. And we are in the process of setting space tests in a grid. And uh, we've got about 47 of them in Nana Glen. Then we monitor the bee flights and you know, try to attract the bees, these wild bees. And once we are confident that we are getting enough bees, then... We then use uh, that 15 moon bite in the uh, syrup, and uh, it's only there for three hours, and then we have to remove it.
17: Because those feral bees can as well, you know, transport and carry varroa mite. Is that why they have to be targeted?
16: That's right. That's right. So for Nanaglen, we are very confident that might not be the case, but we just want to make sure that we don't release one mite and, you know, and lose this whole program. There is some chance that the... Uh, Wild bees or the feral bees might have the mite, and that's why we need to get rid of all the uh, wild European honeybees.
17: And the baiting program, when it's put in place, it means that obviously beekeepers can't have their hives in that area because they can be ultimately affected by the baiting program. So, how long will it be that bees have to stay out of that red zone near Narna Glen?
16: So Nanaklin is a little bit different to uh, the bigger Newcastle area. As you said, they, they infected the hives, so it didn't spend a lot of time. So, look, number one, we will get rid of all the managed hives in the red zone, which we are at the pointy end. Number two, we'll try to get rid of the wild bees, and our program currently is set to sort of see how we go until about March next year, and we'll assess. At that point in time, have we got rid of the wild bees? And if we have, then there's a likelihood that we could um, bring in managed hives at that point in time. But that's, that's a bit further down the track. We're working um, together with big industry and also horticultural industry as well to sort of find the right balance. Not forgetting that the intent of the response is to eradicate mite. So that'll be kept updated as to how the program is going.
17: It is coming into, you know, peak berry harvest time around the Coffs Coast region. I'm assuming the baiting program means there can be no pollination services in and around that area?
16: That's not correct. We we are working with berry industry and... uh, We've got officers up there, um, very industry have come up with a very inventive idea of actually using native bees as pollinators. So we'll work with them to make sure that uh, our biting program doesn't affect the native bees. So we're working very closely with them. So pollination will continue, not using European honeybees, but, but by native bee uh, pollinating bees.
2: This is New South Wales DPI Chief Plant Protection Officer Dr. Satendra Kumar. It's time for markets. Uh,
4: 64,
2: $60, thanks. First up, let's go to Casino Cattle and Doug Robson. It was a rain affected yarding with numbers reduced by more than half for a yarding of 520 head. Young cattle were well supplied and there was a fair penny of cows. Quality improved this week with several pens of supplementary fed cattle through the sale. Competition was stronger with most restocker young cattle selling 20 cents deer and more in places. Restocker weaner steers ranged from 600 to 898 cents. Restocker weaner heifers 580 to 826 Feeder and restock yearling heifers, a range from 500 to 624, and the yearling heifers, 462 to 618 cents. There was only a few growing steers and bullocks. They sold from 396 to 420. Cows sold firm, three score medium-weight savings, 375. Heavy cows, 384 to 396, and best of the heavy bulls, 390 cents.
18: Doug Robson at Casino.
2: Let's go to Karkoor Sheep and Lambs and David Monk.
18: Numbers were backed by 600 free yarding of 3,900 lambs. There was a mixed yarding with odd pins of well-finished new season lambs, both trade and heavyweights, and there was a fair selection of heavyweight old lambs, though there were no extra heavyweights compared to the previous sale. trade weight new season lambs were $5 to $8 dearer, selling from $134 to $190, to average between $800 and $8.30 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs were up to $14 dearer, selling from $120 to $215. Heavyweight lambs were four dearer, with the old lambs over 24 kilograms, selling from 194 to 220 Heavyweight new season lambs over 24 kilograms sold from 210 to 215 to average 825 cents. Lambs to the restockers were firm selling from 58 to 137. Hobbit sold to 160. There were 1650 mixed mutton yarder with the light and medium weight sheep were firm to four dearer and the better heavyweight sheep were four to seven cheaper. Merino Ewes sold from 56 to 134 while crossbred ewes sold from 102 to 136. Merino Weathers sold to 125. This is David Monk Alex for MLA.
2: And let's go to Cowra, Sheep and Lambs now. And it's a very good afternoon to Rob Pearce.
9: Good afternoon, Michael. Lamb numbers remain steady for 4250 Quality was very good with mostly new seasons penned. There were mainly trade and heavies offered along with an increased supply of stores. Medium and heavy trade new seasons were $6 dearer. 2022 22 kilos, sold from 166 to 181, 22 to 24, 181 to 197, averaging 810 to 820 cents. Heavyweights were 5 to 15, dearer. 24 to 26, 195 to 210, 26 plus 195 to a top of 252, averaging 800 cents. Stores sold from 110 to 158, up $10. And mutton numbers fell by 750 for 520, quality varied. Heavy 1st cost use sold from 116 to 130. Heavy merino use sold to 150. And This has been Rob Pearce from MLA at Cowra.
2: Thanks, Rob. Let's go to Yas Sheep and Lambs now, and Graham Richard.
14: Good afternoon. Lamb numbers eased to 4,750, and this included 2,700 new season lambs. The quality improved on most of the new season lambs, while old lambs remained mixed, with a lot of longer-skinned lambs penned. Trade and heavyweights were well supplied, along with good lines of young. Store lambs. The market sold to stronger trends. The new season store lambs are up $10, 105 to 135, trades 20 to 24 kilos, 155 to 191, gained 10 to 13 and averaged 820 to 840 cents, 24 to 26, 191 to 202 and heavyweights reached 209. Old trade lambs 125 to 175. The heavyweights gained 3 to 6, 190 to 214, an average 740 cents. Extra heavies topped at 231. Merino trades reached 128, and the best hoggett 210. Mutton numbers were back to 3,700, prices up $5 to $7. The medium weight ewes 111 to 138. Heavy crossbred ewes 142 to 170. Merino weathers reached 144. And this has been Graham Richard.
2: And let's head to Vale Cattle now and David Kent.
4: Good afternoon. The high rainfall in the region contributed to a considerable decline in numbers for a total yarding of 346 mixed-quality cattle. Ealing Steers made up the bulk of the offering with a few good runs to suit the trade and some good lines to suit feeder buyers and backgrounders. There were a few good pens of vealers returning to the paddock and 50 prime heavy cows. All the usual buyers were operating, selling to a strong market. Prime Ealing Steers lifted 4, to 580. Ealing Heifers to process back 5, 432 to 536. There was a limited supply of feed of cattle. Feed of Steers 470 to 570. Heifers to feed 420 to 495. There was strong demand for lightweight weaners returning to the paddock. Weaner Steers 505 to 775 and the Heifer portion 470 to 632. Grown Steers back 3, 376 to 480. Grand heifers, price unchanged, 380 to 445. Heavy prime cows, 16 better, 389 to 430. Heavy bulls were much dearer, with the best topping at 406 cents per kilo. This is Dave Kent at Moss Isle for MLA.
2: Thanks, Dave. And that's the market information for today and uh, getting a few texts on the issue of the budget, uh, some in favour, some against. Uh, also gas pricing, quite a few people saying we should have uh, access to a gas reservation uh, policy, uh, Chris from Forbes, saying uh, we'd be world leaders in fertiliser production, aluminium general manufacturing. If we did that, we'll, we continue to shoot ourselves in the foot on that issue of access, cheap access to gas. And uh, on the road, someone's texted in saying, it roads, it's a major problem with our bitumen roads. The trucks, they're just too heavy. And uh, when it gets t- uh, too wet, uh, they destroy even the bitumen roads. So that's just some of the thoughts on the text line today. It's coming up to news time.